Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. And joining me to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? It's going well. Thanks, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Amy Bird, who is the author of several books, including Why Can't We Be Friends? Avoidance is Not Purity by P&R, and most notably, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, How the Church Needs to Rediscover Her Purpose, which came out earlier this year with Zondervan. Thanks for joining us, Amy. My pleasure. Good to be here. So the title of your book is a clear allusion to John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the purpose behind your book. Yeah, the purpose behind my book is discipleship for men and women in the church. Uh, That is what my interest is. I write as a informed lay person. Um, And so this is my fifth book. And each one is really built upon the next, I believe, in that matter, just, you know, starting early in my marriage, um, noting how sparse, good, theologically rich resources were for women in the church, and what's being marketed to us and the message that that sends. And so my first book really was to encourage women to say that, hey, we're theologians too, what we know to be true about God matters. Um, and, And it was really a tool that I was trying to put into the hands of women uh, to help them see that more clearly and and open up conversation in that way. And that did pretty well. But then as as I got more invited more into the kind of reformed-ish evangelical subculture as a writer, and and I was doing a podcast and um, going out and speaking and, and, and being able to meet so many different women, the questions were all the same you know, or the problems were all the same. Um, and, it, and it really weighed heavy on me. And so I wanted to write more about the friction that women find and experience in a church if they want to grow um, theologically and contribute that way um, with their gifts in the church. So what I really saw with this book that I wanted to address is the whole way that we read scripture in general. We, I think these days are, are are using more biblicist reading of scripture, like just parsing certain verses. Um, and I wanted to look back and say, you know what, the, the women's voice is actually in scripture, which is amazing because it's, you know, written in a patriarchal context by men. And, um, and when we take a look at how the woman's voice functions and, and just the whole way that we read scripture anyway. So that first part is just like looking at how we read scripture, then looking at how we even view discipleship in the church. Um, and I really get into how the parachurch, we kind of outsourced it to the parachurch. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, just what our great honor and responsibility is as brothers and sisters in the church. Those are the three things I wanted to talk about. But as I was developing this plan for this book and talking to the, edit, the academic editor over at Zondervan about it, um, you know, all those are combating what we've been swimming in. And we don't even know we're in this water. Um, of biblical manhood and womanhood. (laughs) So uh, she said to me, like, I really think you need to directly address Mm. what you're swimming against here. And um, I have a high respect for many of the the writers in that book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I've learned from a lot of them. 
However, I, I really think that it was just such an impactful book for some, some real error that gets attached to this, which is more of a movement. Of course, we all want to be biblical. We want to be faithful men and women. But by taking this kind of tongue-in-cheek title, it's, it is a direct approach saying that, you know what, this isn't unnecessarily biblical. Just if you put the word biblical in front of it, that it's actually a movement. And we need to critically engage with that movement. And hopefully, you know, I believe the church is reformed and always reforming. And, and so let's, let's see if we can participate in that. You know, I, I think about the historical context of that, the rise of that movement of biblical mm-hmm. manhood and womanhood. And if you think about it, it really came right along, right around the time of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And that I've, I've kind of always been fascinated at how those two movements were very interconnected um, so that if, if you're a person who holds to biblical inerrancy, mm-hmm. then it means that you're going to hold to biblical manhood and womanhood as outlined here. You know? Right. There, there is this argument, this underlying argument where yes. they attach their quote unquote complementarity to uh, biblical inerrancy and biblical right. authority. And I always wondered if, if, if um, I ever questioned maybe how something was being interpreted, because I, I come from largely complementarian circles. Okay. And if I ever questioned how something was being interpreted or implemented or whatever, the very first thing that would come up would be, what about biblical inerrancy? Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't say anything about no, I was questioning inerrancy. that, right. Wait, how in the world is that coming about right now or coming up in this conversation and just realizing those two things, I think even maybe subconsciously are so tied together for us, mm-hmm. probably for historical reasons, because they were, they were brought together so closely. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I was curious to, to see if you had experienced that as well at those things. That well, you know, might- that is... That is such a keen observation. You're the first person to ask me this question. Oh, wow. And I've had a lot of interviews. And I, I love that observation because, yes, I do see that. And that the craziest part about it all is, you know, for seven years or so, I worked for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals who were responsible for this mm. statement on biblical inerrancy. And I very much uphold biblical inerrancy. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There's this underlying connection between this movement of biblical manhood and womanhood mm-hmm. and biblical inerrancy. And so, um, you know, the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was um, written to combat what they called evangelical feminism. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the biggest charges that they have against them is that um, they don't uphold the authority of scripture. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. as I began, you know, reading more academic works from egalitarians, I saw hold on a second here, you know, despite what I've been told all my life, they do uphold, you know, the authority of scripture. And there's a wide range uh, of what egalitarians believe and how they interpret scripture and, and uphold the authority of scripture, just like there are in complementarian circles. Mm-hmm. So um, I began to be sharpened, uh, you know, and find some very rich um, work by egalitarians that I wasn't finding on men and women in, in scripture, right. um, which was disappointing to me that we didn't have that in the complementarian hmm. um, circles. So yeah, immediately the charges against me were like feminist reading of scripture, not upholding the authority of scripture. Hmm. And then, you know, even within my own organization that I was working for, I get asked number one question after my book is published 
is uh, what are my views on natural theology regarding the authority of man over the subordination of woman? And I just thought, wow, this is so, just like you're saying, it's so connected and ingrained in our thinking. Yes. I I also couldn't help but notice that because I saw those charges against you that you were quoting you know, Catholics and feminists and egalitarians. Mm-hmm. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh no, I read widely. <laughs> right. Um, but I've also seen and noticed that it's okay, it seems, to lean very heavily on someone's say Jordan Peterson. Right. When we're talking about natural law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I just couldn't help but think, okay, wait a minute. So we can't talk, we can't resource these people, but we can resource these people. Yeah, there are these uh, invisible fences of what I can do as a woman and, and can't do. And it's okay. interesting uh, you know, to hear that you're um, getting your PhD in philosophy because, I mean, this, this is goes far back, you know, not just to biblical manhood and womanhood beginning or even the Victorian age, but just the Aristotelian idea yeah. of woman as deformed man yeah. and, and inferior. To, and, you know, it's just kind of been polished and um, repackaged. So, you know, and you can go back and see, and it's a, it's to our shame. We need to say, okay, the church fathers, you know, they had some really great theology and the doctrine of God and, and, and so many things, but boy, did they get a lot wrong when it came to man and woman. And Mm -hmm. they're just borrowing this, the same Aristotelian view Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, bring that into Christianity. Um, so, and then you see it in the Puritans, you see it in the reformers. So what are we going to do about that? It's abhorrent. Yeah. And from a philosophical standpoint, even looking at contemporary philosophy too, some of it is we really struggle to understand what to do with difference. Yes. In philosophy. So difference is either alienating or it's annihilating. Mm. Like one of those two. And um, so one way that you can maybe cohere things <laughs> is to create a hierarchical subordination grid, right? right? So that we can kind of keep people in their proper place and organize things that way. And we kind of enforce this grid over and against reality mm-hmm. um, in order to keep things in place. So that's one way we can handle it. Or, you know, differences alienating, like men yeah. are from Mars, women are from Venus, um, just completely opposite. They have nothing in common. They're just totally different beings, you know, mm-hmm. um, or we can have these just androgynous views of men and women that really it's just kind of all the same. We just struggle so much with this idea of complementarity, which I also discovered, uh, from my egalitarian friends, but that's not, that's also an egalitarian concept. They were using the word mm-hmm. before us and mm-hmm. yeah. kind of hijacked it from them. Right that you can have um, equals that are not the same. Equality mm-hmm. doesn't equal sameness. It can equal this complementarity without mm-hmm. the subordination. Well, and this contributing and giving um, reciprocally in and through our differences. Right. Which not only are we you know, going to be different as men and women, we can't flatten it to say like men are this and women mm-hmm. are this in all mm-hmm. these ways mm-hmm. because we're unique, unrepeatable human beings, each mm-hmm. one of us. So that needs to be taken into account as well. Yeah, your stuff on John Paul II and bringing his work on the body into the conversation, I think is so helpful in terms of just talking about what gender is, Mm -hmm. um, not this thing that we kind of put 
on top of ourselves right. or these acts and practices that we kind of enforce over and against who we are. Can you kind of explain the difference in approach there? Sure. Um, I mean, so the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood really kicked things off kind of using this word role to talk about what our differences are and, and, and what's important about our distinction as men and women. And I believe it started with George Knight, um, who first introduced this word role. And we hear it all. I mean, we hear it so much that I know I was using that language and not even realizing it. Um, men and women's roles. And the interesting thing is when you really look at how that language is used, the word role comes from the theater. It's playing a part, right? They're using that word role to assign to men and women ontological differences in our very nature. So it's this permanent fixed thing. Um, and this is how we're defined. And it really when you read it, it all breaks down to male authority and female submission. So it's just so flattening. But they use this language like um, we need to emphasize feminine and masculine virtue. Like we have different virtues as men and women. Um, that we need masculine men and feminine women. And we need to act like men and act like women. So like what you're saying, that is um, this language of putting on our femininity, or like, like it's an attribute that I have to perform, which to me, that is feeding into the same language of our culture um, that, you know, I could be a, a, a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body, you know, because it's this separate thing that I'm performing all the time. Um, so I think that they're falling into the same error as even like the transgender community. Um, but then when you, you look at uh, some of the Roman Catholic work done, um, like Pope John Paul II and Sister Prudence Allen and, and so many others, um, and Pope John Paul II really did a lot of great work, especially with theology of the body, but he's, he's done a lot more than that. But he talks about like this integral complementarity versus a, a fractional one. So what I just described over there was this fractional complementarity, like one half plus one half equals one whole. But um, as, as Prudence Allen kind of says, it's more, it's more like three quarters plus one quarter mm -hmm. equals a whole, um, where, where he's talking about one whole plus one whole is coming together to create a third thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you, so you see that obviously in marriage, you know, and we're whole people coming together. Yeah. And, and there's this dynamic reciprocity then that is moving forward mm -hmm. and then creating a third thing. But that's also in the church as brothers and sisters and, and in our friendships that are platonic as brothers and sisters, um, just men and women in general, what mm -hmm. we contribute. And, you know, that just opens up the doors. It's like, so as a woman, everything that I do is feminine. Like that's how I, my expressions will all be feminine because I am a woman. Mm -hmm. You can't change that about me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and. I think now we're looking at this more metaphysical reality of the kind of hylomorphic unity of our body and our soul. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're not something that we can separate into two different genders. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's much more faithful, metaphysically speaking, with reality, much more faithful um, on, on a good side of philosophy. And, um, and even, be able, even being able to parse and, and better nuance from our Greek philosophical fathers, um, what's good and what's bad, not mm -hmm. just like all Aristotle's bad, 
but um, hey, let's look at this anamorphic unity thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so mm. I, I think it's a lot more complex in one sense because we're complex, we're human beings. Um, and there's, but there's only two ways to be a human being mm-hmm. as a man or as a woman. Mm-hmm. I, it's really fascinating. The idea of, you know, three quarter parts plus one quarter part equals, you know, whole, but that's really not, um, that's not a generative equation, right? right. It's, it's this, it's this one thing that's kind of lacking this one little part and then it mm-hmm. gets another part and it just kind of completes itself unto itself. Right. Supposed to when you have two holes coming together, that's when the third can be created, yeah. right? That's when something can be truly progressive in, in the yeah. being well, And when you use the word gender, that's yeah. where the etymology comes from, how we generate. Right. right. Um, and we generate differently as men and women. So yeah. if we think about being fruitful in the church and mm-hmm. doing the work of the church and mm-hmm. seeing the gospel advance. Like these are very generative types of things and it requires, you know, two whole people, mm-hmm. um, not just like one person who just needs a little bit of help, right? <laughs> all that he can be, you mm-hmm. know? And isn't that so exciting and beautiful? I mean, I just don't see why everybody doesn't want to just embrace this because it's mm-hmm. just glorious. So speaking a bit here about complementarity, um, it seems like, you know, your book has received the most forcible uh, opposition from complementarians, and yet it seems like you are advocating for a particular type of complementarianism that is opposed to some of the things that you find to be problematic about a a position that you also hold to. It's sort of more of an in-house debate. I'm curious if you might want to unpack a little bit about what What's this kind of distinctive complementarianism that you're trying to advocate? Right. And, and I'm, not, I'm not even using the word complementarianism because I think it just gets, it's so attached to the movement and all the error in it. And um, I don't, you know, as you're saying, I, I had some vitriol come my way and a lot of harsh criticism. And, um, and you know, it's not all the harsh criticism is, is in the same category as the reviling kind. But um, I don't know that they would want to say that I'm a complementarian either because they're so attached to those authority and submission categories um, that they don't see a complementarianism that isn't primarily about that. Um, for me, I, uh, the way that I see it is a more theological way of looking at things um, that the reason for uh, male headship in the church as far as ordination goes, I would see as representative of, you know, Jesus Christ, the head of the church who is masculine. And, um, and so they're representing that in their masculinity to Christ's bride, the church. Um, you know, the rest of us really have more of this fem- feminine we're in that we're pointing to the bride of Christ. So I see this playing all throughout scripture. And I would definitely have a lot of differences in the way that I interpret the creation account than they do with men and women. Um, they say that, you know, woman is created second, and that shows that man's in charge and, you know, he is, uh, has the authority and that she is subordinate to him and, and less, you know, they won't use the word less, but I mean, two plus two equals four. Mm -hmm. And, um, and for me, I say, no, (laughs) in in the story of creation, like you see the one thing created and then it gets filled out with the next Mm -hmm. thing, like the sky and then all the birds, you know, and everything fill it out and the water and then the fish and fill it out and day and night fill out the day. So, um, 
what I see is this, the woman is, um, she's the crown of creation. Mm. And when, when man first sees woman who he had to be put down for. So here's Adam, who is the federal representative of mankind. And he has to be put down, put to sleep and sacrifice part of his own body from his side um, for woman. And God doesn't create woman from the dirt. Like he creates man from the dirt. She's not of the earth in one sense, you know, like she, she's created directly from man. And so he sees his telos when he sees woman, he sees what he's to become the collective bride of Christ flowing from his side. You know, the very picture of the cross is already there in creation. And that we're told that husband is going to leave his household to unify with his bride, um, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did, right? Um, so I see the gospel told right there, and, and I see this typology in woman as the bride of Christ, which is a beautiful thing. And she fills mm-hmm. out the word in some ways. Um, and so headship, I believe then, isn't um, oh, who gets to make all the decisions <laughs> mm-hmm. and have all the authority. But headship, like Christ shows us and like he taught his disciples in Matthew, you see, I think 21, um, it's about them being authorized, that's what authority is, what you're authorized to do, to be the first to sacrifice, the Mm. first to love. It's the order of love. Um, She's the beloved and then she she wears that love and then she reciprocates it back. Mm. Um, And so they're the first to um, give themselves and their rights and their own power to serve the bride. Mm. So to me, that's a much different picture than what we're getting in complementarianism. mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful and interesting to hear you um, situate that and distinguish your position from complementarianism altogether. But of course, you're not exactly an egalitarian, even though some of your uh, opponents might want to brand you as such. I wonder if maybe you could tell us what prevents you from being egalitarian. Well, what prevents me is what I just described there is that beautiful picture. Um, And I do think that our bodies are theological and that they're telling this great story of Christ's spousal love for his bride. So my argument isn't so much, oh, um, it would be abhorrent for a woman to get behind a pulpit and preach. Um, I don't think that it would be abhorrent (laughs) at all, but I don't think it's the proper representation that that we've been given. And so... um, that's why I'm not an egalitarian. However, I also don't stand on the same, like this is, mm-hmm. you know, egalitarians are feminizing the church and the whole, you know, mm-hmm. to me, that's a second order doctrine, which complementarians used to say, um, mm-hmm. it's a second order. It doesn't have to do with whether, you know, we're saved or not. Um, church is so, a you know, lampstand by having a exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. um you know i'm not an egalitarian I, I feel like i have strong theological reasons why yeah but um i don't look at them as the danger zone in the same way that um complementarians would i've also heard kind of that same theological um interpretation of gender throughout the scripture um and i'm trying to remember exactly how how it's phrased but um if men are kind of analogous to Christ, um, then the woman is analogous to the spirit. And so when the disciples were told after Jesus gave them the great commission, like go out and preach the gospel to all nations, but he said, wait for the spirit to come. Mm -hmm. Um, so they did. And then Pentecost comes and then they were, they were filled, you know, that same concept of, of filling, um, they were filled with the spirit and the spirit is what brought the power and brought the fire 
mm-hmm. to be able to really accomplish that work. So kind of like that one plus one equals this generative thing, like the, the idea of the woman being the filler and the woman bringing the power and bringing the fire um, to be able to really accomplish the work of the gospel. Mm. I find to be a really compelling picture in that regard, in the sense that this is a lot deeper than, yeah. um, than simply, well, God made men first and then women are supposed to, to be their, their subordinate right. helpers. If yeah. You know. That's an interesting, there's a lot to think about there. And, um, you know, working with the, the, the spousal bridal analogy, um, you know, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. You've got, uh, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel referring to Israel as the bride and even using terms like adult adultery. Um, then you've got Paul in Ephesians five interpreting creation in that way, saying, this is the great mystery, (laughs) this, this analogical meaning to our bodies. Um, but then right smack in the middle of scripture, you have the song of songs, Mm -hmm. which is the enfleshing of that story of Christ's spousal love for his church. And it's interesting because there's so many intertextual allusions in the song. And, um, and one is. Um, and getting back to your spiritual spirit part is the end of revelation, just the bride joining herself, her, joining her voice with the spirits mm. to say, come, you mm. know, and, yeah. and she's calling brothers and sisters to come to the waters of life that her very body is a homology of that we see in, in chapter four of the song of songs. We also see it in the, the, the woman in the well story with, with mm. Christ. Um, which is one of his longest dialogues in the gospel. And what does she do? She goes out calling a whole town to come and see this man who knew everything about her. And, and he, what is he talking about? The water, the water of life again. So I think this water of life analogy with the spirit is really interesting mm-hmm. too. And the just evangelical element to the bride um, in, in all these areas of scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I love it too, because for the disciples to move forward with the great mm-hmm. commission without having obeyed Jesus to wait for the spirit, they would have completely undercut their power <laughs> to be able mm-hmm. to proclaim the gospel to the nation. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So turning kind of to your conversation about women's discipleship or just discipleship in general in the church, um, we've talked about how there's been in a lot of churches, at least uh, significant portions of the church that have been under discipled or they've not been brought up as disciple makers along with the men. So uh, can you share with us some of your ideas about discipleship and insights that you bring in the book? Yeah. And and that's the interesting thing too, is because like now we're back to discipleship here, but we had to get through these questions of leadership. And it's interesting because the book is about discipleship. I'm not even talking about who can be a leader or not in the church because that just wasn't, there's so many conversations about that. And there's, it totally overshadows what 98% of us are trying to do in the church and the relationship then that we have with our, our leaders in the church as disciples. So, I mean, I really think in, in scripture, you just see um, so much um, co-ministry really with the disciples and the leaders and the planters um, and so much poured into and invested in them. And then what do they do? They take off, you know? So um, as a Presbyterian, I kind of get, you know, and I had to kind of filter some of the 
I had too much Presbyterian showing in the book when I was talking about discipleship in itself. Um, but, you know, we see in, in the corporate worship service, the means of grace as, you know, that is where discipleship begins is, you know, the preaching of the word and the sacraments and, and prayer together as a church. Um, that in the Great Commission, you know, Jesus, given all the authority on heaven and earth, um, authorizes them to go and to make disciples. And, and then he mentions baptizing. So it's connected to membership in the church. And it starts with that, the ministry of word and sacrament. Um, however, we see something very different going on now in our culture um, with all the parachurch ministries that we have that um, can be very good and are supposed to like para come alongside um, the church. Um, instead, we are kind of outsourcing discipleship itself to these parachurch ministries to the point where, you know, I see people or hear people telling me, oh, you know, I like my church and all, but I really feel like Matt Chandler is my pastor. And, and, you know, I'm using his discipleship stuff to help disciple these three people who don't even go to my church, but I'm discipling them, you know? So it's completely uh, detached from the local church. And for me, that, that's a real problem. Not that you can't study the word with people outside of your church or learn from Matt Chandler, um, but you have to have it in the proper categories. Um, where is discipleship overflowing from? Hmm. And my, Matt Chandler had no accountability to this person you know, as, as a pastor. Um, and, you know, we have set in place in our local churches you know, elders or, you know, leaders that are accountable for shepherding our souls. So um, I think we need to keep that in our proper categories. And I, I think that's where something like biblical manhood and womanhood has really infiltrated the church um, through all of their teaching resources, their conferences, and, you know, the books marketed for women's ministries and men's ministries and children's ministries in the church. So um, I know pastors can't do everything and it's, and you know, I'm all for bringing in books for resources, but we need to make sure that we're accountable as, you know, that our pastors and leaders are accountable to read that stuff, to make sure it's in line with what their teaching is. I mean, I just think so many pastors look to these celebrity uh, writers and preachers now to learn about this stuff themselves. So there's this whole tangled mess of where discipleship's happening. And then what it's happened is women's ministries have been so separated um, and we're just kind of this arm off of the church um, and we're not integrated into the church and, and everything we do is in its own category. We have women's Bibles. And what's that? Do women have different Bibles than men? And, and then you open it up and you see that the articles in there are very different from the, you know, geared very differently than the articles are in the men's and in, in weird ways that I get into in the book. So um, you can just see how it affects the way that we read the word of God mm -hmm. and the way that we view one another and our contributions in the church. And so I think the church is very anemic right now in the sense mm -hmm. that it's not getting good contribution and reciprocity. So it's not dynamic. It's not generative. Do you think that part of just the expanse of the parachurch organizations, again, having their place and being wonderful, um, mm -hmm. but particularly for women, um, just speaking from my own experience in growing up in complementarian churches, right. if there isn't much for women, 
in my church or if what is there is you know calligraphy lettering a bible verse (laughs) right (laughs) um and i'm wanting something more and i'm wanting to be able to serve and i'm wanting to be able to grow there's two things in in my world at least that stand out to me as options one would be parachurch organizations where i can actually exercise my gifts Mm -hmm. the second is actually the mission field because the nations will take the gifts of They'll women. They'll take you. <laughs> and we seem to be okay with sending women out to use their gifts in the mish, on the mission field a lot more than we would allow them to use those gifts here, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, do you think that some of those gender dynamics have had to do with some of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, women, any woman who has a desire to be invested in more or maybe um, has some theological vigor and gifts of teaching um, where she's got to go, she's got to go outside of the church often to the parachurch um, Mm -hmm. to, to have those opportunities. But then what happens is you get put in your pink rooms with your fences in the parachurch as well. Right. Because yeah, you can exercise these gifts in your playpen over here (laughs) and, and uh, you know, be careful though, who you're influencing and, you know, to have this doctrine taught within complementarianism that to the point that a woman's influence is uh, direct or personal over a man, it is an insult to his uh, God-given masculinity. Hmm. Uh, what can you do with that then? That woman can do not very much with that except for be manipulative. Mm, that's very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and have fear too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know I, there's uh, this one story that I tell fairly frequently that when I started my master's program, um, I was the only woman in the program in a mm-hmm. philosophy of religion program. And I was in the class and it was maybe like six months into the program. I went to the provost of my institution, who was a good friend who I really trusted. And I, I sat down and I, like had this existential crisis right in front mm-hmm. of him. I said, I I'm so worried that if I get this master's and this PhD that I'm going to harm the church. And he mm. was like, why? Why do you think that? And I said, I just noticed in my classes that if I make a point or if I like throw out an argument or I push back against something that one of my classmates say, like they either seem to get really mad or they kind of cower away. Mm. Um, and I, I'm worried that I'm not going to encourage my brothers to be the best they can be. I'm going to discourage my brothers and I'm going to be this person that's like intimidating. And, you know, then they just kind of like fall back in the corner and I don't want to see that from them. And so I'm worried that if I grow that, then they're going to shrink. And I was, so, I mean, I was in tears mm-hmm. having this conversation with him. And I was like, I said, I will, I will like, um, unenroll right now and quit this entire trajectory towards PhD if that's going to happen. And he said, um, I think you're thinking about the church in terms of a pie chart, that if one piece of the pie grows, then that means that there's going to be less for the other parts of the, mm-hmm. of the chart. Um, that's not how the church is. The church is like a garden and it explodes yes. with life. Song of songs. Exactly right. (laughs) Um, And so that I I think was it was very revolutionary for me because I was raised with this idea that if you 
row too much, mm-hmm. it's going to discourage your brothers. And that's that fractional understanding. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That is terribly sad to hear, but I've experienced in my own circles, the same thing. And I mean, your response was so much more gracious. <laughs> I mean, I feel like my response is like, what is wrong with, uh, you know, is, you know, we have that word snowflake or whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. Is your masculinity that fragile? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yours was a, a lot more humble, self-examinatory, seeks somebody's advice. <laughs> well, a lot of it was because I was young and I had been raised in this, that this was just how I had been trained to think. So, I mean, yeah. now I'd be like, okay, listen. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was raised in a, a family with like martial arts training. My dad taught it out of our house. So, and it was, and my siblings are two girls and a boy. So, um, and we kind of sandwiched my brother in the birth order. So, yeah, I just never had those messages mm. taught to me before. Yeah. Until. I got more into writing and evangelicalism and reform, particularly evangelicalism. So it was very You learned shocking. it really quick. <laughs> yeah. But that I hear from so many women in seminary. And and happily too, I hear from um, professors and even deans who want to do better and want to lead better. And even professor who, you know, invites me to come speak to his preaching and communications class about preaching to women because, mm-hmm. you know, that's a a real blind spot. Um, so it is good to see that there are some becoming very aware and proactive and, and, you know, your provost, thank goodness, um, encouraged you to continue and gave you that beautiful picture. And, and isn't that what woman, uh, her, she's a typology of that garden. Her, her body is, you see it in the song. She's calling at the end, her groom to the spice laden mountains that her body represents. Um, using all those same uh, those same spices that we see in the fragrance in the temple, the temple language is used to describe her body. And then, what do you see? Uh, you know, John says, coming down out of heaven, the bride is this great garden city, mm-hmm. temple. So, I mean, to me, that yeah, it's going to need both men and women. Mm-hmm. And it's such a strength to have women in seminary and in PhD programs in religion, and, um, because you know, so many of these, you know, pastors in training are only reading male authors. Yeah. They're only being taught by male teachers with their other male students. Yeah. And um, I think it's, it's really limiting what, you know, could be their whole learning experience to where they're going to come in and pastor a church that is probably predominantly women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing I've noticed is there's been a push for women. You don't need to only read women authors. You can also read what the men read, you know, mm-hmm. like, yes, that's true. But also uh, it shouldn't just be men authors who are mm-hmm. making up that section of the, you know, and we said this, I think in our last episode, that when you walk into a Christian bookstore, the sections that stand out the most are the women's and children's section oh, yeah. because they're more colorful and, you know, but then the rest is sort of the gray regular section. And that's the everybody else section but it's really the men's section and it's (laughs) (laughs) and it's made up predominantly of male authors and so I think not only encouraging women to read from that section Mm -hmm. but also encouraging women to contribute to that section yeah which is a very hard uh, market to get into honestly like if you're just talking marketability 
Um, and, and that's where I am. I'm trying to write to a mixed audience, but you know, pu publishers take a risk with me because um, I'm not as marketable writing to a mixed audience as I am writing to a women's audience. Mm -hmm. And um, my, in my book, No Little Women, uh, I did some researching then, and it's shocking to see how much better women's books sell than the rest. The women's genre, I mean, that's where the publishers are making their money. So looking ahead beyond 2020, what are some projects that you are working on? Of course, 2020 has been quite a hectic year for everyone. Uh, but in, for you in particular, it's kind of been a bit extra because you've also had to deal with all of these kind of crazy responses to your book. I was thinking that myself. I had this revelation while I was washing dishes last night after dinner thinking 2020 just seems to be this like whole strange game of would you rather you know <laughs> when it comes to who you're going to vote for it's like what these are my choices and then when it comes to uh, the mask thing and covid um we're not given you know maybe what we want our choices to be and 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 then i was thinking on top of that just with my um book release being in 2020 um you know it was time to come out right before all the big conferences which mm -hmm. didn't happen um and and yet, you know, would I rather <laughs> have, you know, been able to do that? And, and what would I have faced there? I don't know. Um, the vitriol part, actually, I have been, it's been growing over at least three years mm. um, towards me. So, um, mm. of course, it came dumping down and then, you know, getting different, you know, different layers from different people and, and really, um, you know, losing friendships, you know, some really sad things over it. But I also think that, um, you know, and, and with these other things going on in 2020, it's also been very revealing. Um, you know, the way that we react to these things, you know, God is using this very thing to strengthen his church. And, um, you know, I'm praying, you know, straight out of Hebrews 12, that it doesn't feel good. But um, what will this reveal at the end about about my faith too. Like, mm. so I need to be trained by it and to, and I know God will, he promises to produce the fruit of righteousness if we'll mm. be trained by it. So, you know, that's what I pray that I can do. Um, however, you know, as far as, you know, it's interesting too, because there's this anti-marketing concept to where my book's probably done better in sales because of the controversy mm. in some ways, but then in other ways, I feel like the well has been poisoned. Mm -hmm. um, by some of these reviews saying things that my book, you know, just mis misrepresenting my writing. Mm -hmm. right. um, so I've been thankful to, you know, keep getting invited to, to do interviews on the book. Um, I'm, I'm seeing so many like-minded people, both in just lay people in the church, um, ministers, and then academics. Mm -hmm. And I really think it's going to take all, all of us to keep this conversation going in a way that can really be healthy for the church mm -hmm. so and it, and it helps me going into my next project then um you know i had to stop <laughs> sit back and say do i still have the skin for this like am i do i is it even worth it um why is why who am i <laughs> mm. who in the heck am i why are people getting so mad um so you know i've had to ask all those questions and um you know, what I'm really excited about is the positive aspect to all this. I mean, all that ugly stuff, um, 
it's sad and um and some of it's downright horrible but um i'm so excited about that much more beautiful picture of christ's spousal love for his bride and um i think that this vitriol and the you know a lot of the critique has shown that we really do have a problem with what how we think about the meaningfulness of our sexes mm-hmm. um and i and i think both complementarians and egalitarians um, are missing this mm-hmm. um we're defining sexes according to what we can and cannot do um, instead of who we are and the meaningfulness behind what that is. And so that's what my next book, I, I'm honored again to be able to work with um, Zondervan Academic and my great editor that I get to work with again, um, Katja Coverett, mm-hmm. because she's really helped me grow. I'm not an academic. And um, so she's been there for 18 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so her experience is just so helpful for me and, and she's Russian and blunt, you know, mm-hmm. so, and I need yep. that. I, I yep. like that. Um, and so I'm growing as a writer through all of this, but uh, this book is called, and you know, again, we get to do a highly uh, <laughs> marketable title. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the sexual reformation. And mm-hmm. the, um, the subtitle is restoring the dignity and personhood of man and woman. So what I'm doing with this book is kind of exploring the theological meaning behind our sexes. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping to help Christians understand our sexuality as a gift. Mm. And then just kind of to, to grasp that eschatological story that our bodies are telling mm. and, and where we're headed. Mm. So to me, that's just absolutely beautiful. Mm. But all that I've been through with, to get here um, I think, and so many others, um, mm-hmm. is revealing that we, in fact, do need a sexual reformation in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that with the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and the Church Too movement and all that's being um, revealed now on so many levels, I think we're seeing, just like in Judges, um, the more that we turn our eyes away from God and do what's right in our own eyes, um, it's revealed in the way we treat our women. Hmm. Well, that sounds wonderful. We're all very, very much looking forward to that. And just wanted to say thank you so much, Amy, for joining us today and being a part of this. This was an absolutely wonderful conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. It was good to meet you. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.